Welcome to Econ Talk, brought to you by the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. My guest today is Virginia Postrel, a creative and engaging author and thinker on a host of topics, including culture and economics, an unusual combination. She's the author of The Future and Its Enemies and The Substance of Style. She writes the Culture and Commerce column for The Atlantic and blogs regularly at dynamist.com. Virginia, welcome to Econ Talk. Great to be with you. Your latest book was The Substance of Style. Uh, the title seems like an oxymoron. Style, to many people, has little substance. What did you have in mind with that title, and tell us what the book's about. Well, the book is about two things. Um, it starts with an observation of a trend, uh, which is that aesthetics, the look and feel of people, places, and things, is increasingly important uh, in our economy and culture. Uh, it's increasingly important as a source of economic value, and that reflects certain cultural uh tendencies as well as a number of technological and economic developments. Starting from that point, um, it the book then seeks to examine why it is that consumers find style or aesthetics um, a genuine source of value. Uh, there is a long-standing cultural critique that essentially says that any concern with the surfaces of things, is, uh, and particularly a willingness to pay more for mere packaging, is a sign of delusion, manipulation, deception. And... Um, while it is certainly possible to put something of low quality in a pretty package, uh, that is not, I argue, what is happening in our economy today. Uh, in fact, the increasing importance of aesthetics is in many ways a direct result of very high quality in the traditional sense of, uh, of reliability and uh, function. Um, that what we have is, in fact, another dimension of quality being added, of quality in the sense of that which consumers value. And uh, what the substance of style does is look at what is it that people find of value in aesthetics? Why is this not simply some kind of self-deception? And the answer then falls into sort of two general categories. One is simple sensory pleasure. People enjoy things that are sensorily and emotionally gratifying more than they do things that are merely functional. Um, and this translates into say, the senses, just the ability to say, I like that. Um, then there is an, another dimension, uh, which is the dimension of meaning. Uh, people associate meanings with aesthetic elements, and those meanings are valuable to them. 
Uh, those meanings change a lot over time. Uh, they they are they're different in different cultural contexts, and different for different people. Um, but they are genuinely valuable. Now, the meaning that social critics always talk about is status, and sort of a sub theme of the substance of style is that while status is always present uh, and and people care about status, status in the simple sense of being able to say, I have more money than you, is not what's driving most of this today. Uh, that first of all, there's a lot more differentiation. There's not a, even in the world of status, there's not a single status hierarchy. And that even more importantly, a lot of what social critics sort of blindly assume is status competition is, in fact, not competition, um, but the pursuit of new pleasures. Uh, and that if you see that your you know, your friend has uh, leather seats in his car, and you, I just heard an anecdote about this the other day, um, and you because you're riding with your friend and you decide that you would like to have leather seats in your in your next car, that's not nece- necessarily and probably not about trying to show up your friend. It's more that you had this pleasurable experience in his car that led you to the knowledge that, hey, this is something one could have and I would like to have it too, but it's really about pleasure, not about uh, the, the, comp- the sort of status competition that you often here assumed. Yeah, the social critics use the status competition as a way of dismissing uh, these tor- sorts of innovations and also using it as an indictment of, of the market. Right? So the market gives you these um, so-called empty improvements that are merely status-oriented. So an example I always think of is the Rolex watch, right? You have this watch that costs thousands of dollars. You wear it on your wrist to show your uh, competitors that you're you're really wealthy and it doesn't tell time any better than the cheap ugly watch and so this whole thing is a mindless uh empty competition but i really like your point that a lot of the times that things do look they look better they give us pleasure and and they are better it's not just the fact that they're pretty it's really i think an important point do you get a lot of criticism for that uh, viewpoint from those social critics well, I got some, but the funny thing is that this sort of this very sort of puritanical streak um, is not necessarily uh, always popular. <laughs> I mean, there, there's a large number of people um, who, regardless of their feelings about the marketplace, uh, really value. Uh, the look and feel of things, uh, really think that aesthetics is important um, and that we have undervalued uh, the sensory in our culture. So uh, what has happened with the book is it's been kind of a crossover in, in different... I mean, there are people... I mean, I, I, I do remember a time I gave a talk at... Um, a design school, and the students were very in, interested and engaged in my substance. Um, but I had a couple of really hostile questions, hostile not simply in their skeptical t- 
tone, uh, skeptical content, but in their tone and 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 uh, from essentially professors who are Marxists. But unfortunately, a lot of the uh, kind of anti-commercial ethic is who you get teaching the non-design courses at design school, mm-hmm. um, who were very upset that I kept talking about uh, design in the context of things that you can buy. And they're saying, you know, it's not always about the commercial. And my argument to them was, of course not. I mean, obviously things can be designed that are not sold in the marketplace. But what's interesting is what's going on in our culture and our economy right now uh, where this aesthetic content is becoming more important in the marketplace. And why is that? And, uh, you know, let's, let's look at this. Um, so there, there have been mixed reactions. Well, I like your point. It's related to this issue of status, that aesthetic issues, aesthetic design, beauty, um, sensory, sensorily pleasurable stuff is not just going to the, the rich who use it as a status symbol, but has filtered down into places like Target a mass market retailer who has used uh, designers of various kinds to enhance their product and their brand. Right. I mean, this is, and and the most famous example on the substance of style is I talk about toilet brushes <laughs> um, because the toilet brushes is about as functional a product as you can imagine. I mean, and and it its function is a very low status function. Yes, it is. Um, but also, unlike a car or unlike a wristwatch or whatever, other people don't usually see your toilet brush. Um, and yet, it, it's a very bad way to try to keep up with the Joneses, uh, you know, <laughs> if you will. And and yet, there has been quite an expansion of the this kind of very low-end um, example of additional aesthetic pleasure. If you go particularly into a specialty store like Bed Bath & Beyond or Linens and Things, but you can find the same thing in Target, or uh, uh, you will find a great variety of essentially the holders that these come in. And they are more expensive than uh, something that is purely functional. Uh, but they're not expensive in the general scheme of things. Um, most of them cost uh, less than $20, and, of course, you keep them for a very long time. Although I do, in the book, talk about toilet brushes that go up, 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 up in price, you know, into the hundreds of dollars where you're essentially creating a certain kind of environment in your bathroom. But it's for yourself. It's for your own pleasure. It is not about status competition. Um, it's about pleasure. And in fact, even at, at the high end, when you look at the supposedly damning examples that people bring up uh, of consumers talking about why they buy expensive things, you often find that in fact they are saying things that have nothing to do with status. So, for example, uh, Robert Frank in Luxury Fever um, quotes 
somebody talking about why she bought a Viking range for her for her uh, kitchen, even though she rarely cooks. Um, and she says, you think of it as a painting that makes the kitchen look good. Well, that's not about status. That's about I want a pretty stove. Sure. Um, it's and a, a lot of the times, um, James Twitchell, who is actually a defender of luxury, but he writes in a sort of a distancing way about going on Rodeo Drive to the different stores. Um, but when he's in the Armani store, he says it was like a petting zoo because people were fondling the fabrics. Well, that again is about sensory pleasure and about something that is beyond the function of the clothes to cover your body. It's an additional function, which is to be enjoyable. Your point about the uh, toilet brushes and the Viking range uh, really enhances your earlier point about the quality uh, aesthetic uh, complementarity. I have one of those, uh, we have one of those toilet brushes uh, with the little cover on it. And when you lift the toilet brush out of the cover, the cover springs open. Uh, You use the toilet brush, we put it back and it springs closed. And the shape of the thing that's covering the toilet brush is aesthetically pleasing. That's correct. But it also has this nice advantage that it keeps the toilet brush from dripping on the floor, which is a particularly pleasant thing. And the same with the Viking stove. The Viking stove puts out an obscene uh, number of BTUs, presumably, for uh, uh, if you want to vaporize some uh, food product. But it's also very beautiful. And it's a, it's a really interesting point. Um, you know, I used to argue with my students all the time whether an expensive fountain pen uh, writes any better than a cheap one. And the answer is it does. An expensive fountain pen really does work better than a than a cheap one. And then they say, well, but, but does it work so much better that it justifies the price? And my answer always has been, and I suspect it's yours, is, well, that's up to the user. You know, These are unquantifiable, these improvements in quality, but they're certainly not empty, these, these changes in quality. They're certainly not uh, irrelevant. And more importantly, I think, is that beauty is relevant. Um, we don't want to walk around in, uh, in our um, Mao jackets in one color. We, we like variety and expressiveness. Right. I mean, what's interesting to me, it, it, and to put it in sort of economic jargon, to a great degree what the substance of style is about is a defense of subjective value, saying that you know consumers in the marketplace value things for reasons we can understand psychologically, but we can't necessarily... Uh, quantify them on a universal scale because it's subjective. And I would say that while you have this tendency to always say it's really about function, (laughs) because the Viking stove really does work better and the toilet brush really does work better, and they do, but, but you can find examples where there is absolutely no functional difference. So, for example, um, Apple, charges, I believe it's about $100, but a a certain premium for the black version of its MacBook uh, computer uh, laptop uh, compared to the white version. They are exactly the same machine. Now, why it is that that's a rational business strategy, I don't know. You know, it doesn't cost extra. The, The question is, you know, 
why why are they making too few white ones or what's are too few black ones or what's going on there but it is interesting that in some cases people will pay an additional increment simply for example for a different color of something that is the identical product and the example i have in the book is uh, from the very early days of of pagers uh, when some engineers at motorola just on the lark almost, decided to make, instead of making all the pagers black, which was the standard at the time, to use green plastic, which cost the same uh, for some of them. And it turned out that they could get $30 more for the green pagers um, compared to the black ones. Now, of course, in a competitive marketplace, what happens is when somebody discovers something like this, that people will pay an additional increment for color, then the next thing you know is all the pager manufacturers are making pagers in different colors, and the additional price is competed away. And, and in that fact, a lot money. of these games, these aesthetic games, because they tend to be in very competitive markets, are going entirely to consumers, uh, and they're not really being reflected necessarily in higher prices. You gave the example in the book, which I like, uh, which... I'd like you to tell us about of, of beaded shoes, a, a fashion um, design for women's shoes that uh, used to cost a large amount, right? And uh, technology brought the price down and presumably brought the price down. Right. I mean, what you, what you think of when you first hear, you know, there's this new invention that makes beading shoes very which used to be very, you could only find beading on very, very expensive shoes. So first you think, oh, wow, those expensive shoe manufacturers are going to make so much money because they can now, you know, charge, still charge, you know, $500 for a pair of shoes, but instead of costing them, uh, you know, $50 to do the beading, it's now costing them $10 to do the beading, and they'll just get that $40. Well, of course, that's not, that may happen for one season. Maybe, uh, but over time, what happens is, in fact, that uh, aesthetic improvement filters down to the, uh, the the mid-range shoes, or and eventually even to the cheap ones, and it's not reflected in higher prices because it's a, a competitive industry. And the fact that it's not reflected in higher prices also uh, it actually screws up the way we measure price increases um, because what you've had is a quality improvement that is it is not affected not uh, reflected in a price increase so what you're really doing is getting more for your money and yet the measurement CPI and things like that are, are counting it as the same product, say black shoes. Yeah, that's one of my it's um, <clears throat> one of my pet peeves, right? So you've got you've got black shoes with no beads, and you have black shoes with beads. They're relatively this uh, similar price, and the Bureau of Labor Statistics just calls it a black shoe. Doesn't add in that extra benefit from uh, the beading or the aesthetic value of yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, with the black beaded shoes, that might get added in because. It, um, but you can see in other areas, uh, like hotel rooms, where a lot of where there's been an 
enormous amount of aesthetic improvement and, and to some degree, you know, functional improvement, if you call having a more comfortable mattress a functional improvement. I, I would. <laughs> um, a hotel room is measured as a hotel room. And, 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 and to be fair to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, I don't know how exactly you would value that, how you would measure it if you, they were doing it differently. The, 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 there are real problems here, but there definitely is a case. When you're having a lot of quality improvements, in general, it's hard to uh, measure price indices. And when those quality insur- improvements are in uh, areas where it's very hard to measure as opposed to computing speed or miles per gallon in a car or something like that, uh, it becomes even more difficult. Yeah, I don't blame the Bureau of Labor Statistics. I blame the people who use blindly or maybe not so blindly use their data to make uh, statements about the stagnant uh, standard of living of the middle class when those price indices used to deflate income are very uh, – Overstated. They overstate inflation, so they understate the improvements of our standard of living. And uh, people who've studied it, you know, find that it's it's off by as much as one percentage point a year, which is an enormous right. uh, mistake to make uh, systematically over time. Uh, it's a very um, interesting example. I want on the hotel room. I'd be interested in what you would point to as the aesthetic improvements when you mention the the mattress. What I've noticed is that because of competition, hotels overhaul their their um, insides more frequently than they used to because they're in competition with others who are doing the same thing. So that is an improvement in things like the firmness of the mattress. But what are you, what are you thinking of when you talk about the aesthetics? Well, there, there actually is a very, very clear pattern in the hotel industry. What you had uh, was Starwood which owns famously on a style from style point of view W but more importantly um Weston and Sheraton uh Starwood Hotels and Resorts is the name of the company uh had a CEO who just paid attention to this and was not from inside the hotel industry so he sort of thought differently and they made different Trade-offs uh, on their hotel budget. Uh, there's a you know the, at a certain price point, you have a certain budget for everything. You know, if you have bare walls and bare floors, how do you furnish the room? And so, one thing they did was they got better mattresses and did things like they got rid of the armoire that uh, contained the television, uh, which is a very expensive piece of furniture. It's one of the most expensive things in the room. And they used that money to uh, spend more on the mattress, to uh, enlarge the desk. I mean, there's certain things that are functional, get better workspace. Um, but they also did things like they put the mirrors in frames, uh, which is an aesthetic improvement, very subtle. Um, they uh, they put partly because prices have gone down a lot, granite countertops in bathroom upgraded to the look and feel of the bathroom uh, most the most famous thing that they did was they introduced something called the heavenly bed which was yes a better mattress but it was also um, much better linens um, and it was white it was all white 
a very striking aesthetic look, uh, which cut totally against tradition in the hotel industry, which had always said, "Well, you don't want to you don't want to have colors that will show dirt." And of course, it turned out, and, and they did have to develop some special uh, cleaning products and ways to keep this clean. But it turns out that if you make linens that don't show dirt, that do show dirt, and they're clean, your customers actually perceive that the whole place is cleaner, and it probably is. Uh, and so this became very popular and was much copied. Now, many many hotels that you go into have white bed linens, um, which are very much more aesthetically pleasing than the traditional ugly floral bedspread that didn't show dirt. It's a remarkable There were a lot thing. of little things like that, and part of it is just bringing in uh, a notion of creating a sense of identity in the room, a sense of who the customer is, where the place is, who the hotel is. And uh, and a sort of uniform or a, a coherent is a better word a coherent aesthetic uh, throughout the room as opposed to simply having you know colors that don't clash. It's really a, a fascinating thing. You think about twenty five, thirty, forty years ago. Can you imagine hotel uh, owners, CEOs, managers, executives talking about competing for customers through the um, comfort of the bed? Uh, it's really a really it's a nice example. It really runs throughout the book of how competition uh, has moved away from merely overprice and and the functionality issues to these aesthetic and comfort and pleasure issues, luxury issues. It's really it is a remarkable change over time. Uh, when you go back to you know the the 50s and 60s, you're not just talking about the fact that well styles change, different things go in and out of fashion. Uh, you know, this color is in now and this color is out. But really, things are prettier. Things are more beautiful. Right. The um, the I think the hotel rooms are a really great example because it's familiar and be- also because in, in 1975, Holiday Inn introduced a slogan that sort of captured post-war economic progress, which was the best surprise is no surprise. Uh, hotels and I would argue the mass consumer economy in general was about getting everybody to the point of not bad. Right, and reliability. Social policy was even about that. I mean, the idea was, you know, if you had a surprise in a hotel room, it was going to be a bad surprise. The heating wouldn't work, or there'd be roaches, or yep. you know, it would be dirty, whatever. Uh, so it was enormous economic progress to get to the point where you could have consistent sort of lowest common denominator quality. Uh, that was genuine progress, being able to, to roll that out, not only in hotels, but in you know, frozen food or you know, uh, whatever it might be. This was sort of the development of mass markets. But at some point, that becomes old news. And then the question is, what have you done for me lately? And you have a generation of people who've grown up with that as the, the, the assumed background. You're, uh, I, of course, the hotel room is clean. What else? And they want to have a special experience. They want to have. They want the hotel room to be at least as nice as they have at home, or they want to have 
a unique experience. They want to have a personality in the hotel. And you have an expansion of variety and general aesthetic intensity at the same time uh, as a way of competing. And those two things go together because once you're trying to sort of make things look more aesthetically identifiable, you will go in a direction where some people will really like it and some people will maybe not like it as much. And so you need more variety at the same time. And there are lots of you know, managerial and logistical challenges to providing those things, uh, but that is definitely the way the economy has been going because people are always looking for new dimensions uh, well, yeah, uh, for competition. And it's clearly an example of an increase in our standard of living, right? It's not just that our expectations have adjusted and not bad is okay and now what's new, but the fact that we can afford these aesthetic improvements is a sign at a, at a mass level is a sign that, that our standard of living is, is growing. Right. It's, it's an increase in the standard of living. And uh, as I said earlier, in many cases, the prices are not necessarily going up with the quality because of the pressures of competition. So these these aesthetic improvements can be risky because not everybody might like not maybe not everybody likes a white look or whatever is the look. So you're also talking about an increase in segmentation and and choice. So I always like to bring in Adam Smith here when we can. In in the book you talk about the distinction between a mass market and uh, a large market and how Smith observed the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. As the extent of the market grows, you get more specialization, and you do in America get a lot more choice. Right. I mean, Adam Smith's point was about sort of spreading the cost of labor. Um, if you were in a small town and you were a carpenter, you could only you had basically had to make anything wood that people needed. <laughs> you know, you would make barrels, you would make furniture, or whatever, because in order to fill your time uh, in the small town, you had to be very generalist. Uh, if if the carpenter moved to 18th century London, he could specialize. So you would have furniture making makers, you would have coopers who made ba- barrels, these kinds of things. You get more labor specialization in a larger environment. Through most and, of course, trade enlarges that market further. Um, through most of economic history, you only found very specialized niches in lar- in places where there were actually lots of people living. Um, and that includes very sort of specialized aesthetics. Um, if you... You know, in, in 1975, if you wanted to buy uh, some kind of, you know, modernist furniture, uh, say, you needed to go to New York and, and get it or go to Los Angeles, some very large place. Well, what has happened is because of a number of different um, technological and business developments, it has become possible to create large markets that is you know, large enough to support a, a, the cost of a given specialty um, that are not located in a particular place. And what this has done is break the connection that we sort of developed in 
the 20th century between thinking about large markets and mass markets as being the same. So that when you talked about making a lot of something, it was going to be very homogeneous and um, sort of lowest common denominator because that was the mass market. Uh, now you can have a large market, uh, large enough to support the cost of production, but it could be very specialized. And this actually goes, we think of this today, we tend to think about the Internet and ways to you know, serve the long tail, as uh, Chris Anderson's uh, book calls it. Um, but it actually goes back earlier than that. When you first start to see, for example, specialty catalog sales, um, and many of which were oriented towards specific sort of design identities or aesthetic identities and special specialty products that you couldn't get. Uh, that starts essentially in the early 70s, and it's made possible by two things. One is the development of computer databases, but the other, even more important thing, is the development and spread of Visa and MasterCard, or their predecessors, of, of, of not of credit cards that act as trusted intermediaries for both parties. So uh, I talked with a man named Roger Horchow, who's here in Dallas where I live, who developed the first specialty furniture catalog. And he said, you know, that was absolutely critical because he could start a specialty catalog. It could show up in your mailbox. You could use your... MasterCard to buy something, understanding that if if he turns out not to deliver it, you have a recourse at MasterCard, and he also can trust that he'll get paid. It lowered the cost a lot. He didn't have, unlike Sears or Montgomery Ward, he didn't have to get into the credit business, uh, which is a whole very different uh, sort of business. And then this expanded, and we saw lots and lots of segmentation. Of course, now all of our mailboxes, especially this time of year, are full of specialty credit, uh, specialty catalogs, which then complement, and all that infrastructure that developed was very uh, compatible with Internet marketing, um, so that you today have the ability to aggregate very specialized uh, markets into large enough numbers to cover the costs of, of whatever it is that you're selling. Yeah, that's a profound point, the point about the credit card. I think it's uh, totally underappreciated or unappreciated in its impact on uh, on the ability of people to you think of the ability to sell stuff, what people often ignore is is this point, the one you just made, which is phenomenally interesting, how it affected the choice of what's up for sale and made things feasible that weren't feasible before. It's really um, it's a great great example. Um, let's shift gears, if uh, if we might. Um, we did a podcast with Richard, Richard Epstein uh, a while back on the challenge of increasing the number of kidneys available to people on dialysis. And you have a unique perspective on this. Uh, you did an extraordinary thing, and you've written about it. You donated a kidney to a virtual stranger. Uh, I'd like to hear about that, how that came to be, and how it affected or didn't affect your feelings about public policy in that area. Yeah. 
Well, first of all, I wouldn't call Sally Satella a virtual stranger. I would call her a friend, but not a close friend. Okay. It was she was not somebody that she was somebody that I liked very much, um, but didn't see very often. Um, and our relationship was largely through the exchange of emails on particular, usually on subjects of some professional interest. So Sally, who's a doctor and writer on health policy, was a professional acquaintance of yours. And to be more right. to be more accurate, she was not a relative and not a close friend you had daily contact with. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, but I heard. Um, Last, a little over a year ago, I uh, heard from a, a mutual friend that Sally's kidneys were failing and that she needed a kidney transplant. And and because she wasn't a stranger, because she was somebody that I was friendly with, I knew that she had no family uh, to speak of, certainly no immediate family. Um, her parents are dead. She's an only child. She's not been married. She has no children. So all this sort of normal familial ties that people in this circumstance uh, use um, were not available to her. And I thought, well, gee, you know, I could, if, at the time I was under the misapprehension uh, uh, that I had uh, type O blood, which is the universal donor, but uh, I thought I could give her uh, a kidney. And this, I, I did research, and it turns out that, first of all, the only... These days, the only compatibility you need is uh, the same blood type. The days of, you know, having to get a kidney from your identical twin are long over. Uh, the, the donor simply has to have the same um, blood uh, or a compatible blood type, and the risks are uh, quite low for the donor. Uh, they are essentially the risks of sur- the surgery, which are not trivial. Uh, no surgical procedure is without risks, but it turns out that you really don't need two kidneys. Uh, that if you have one kidney, uh, they it, it functions, it makes up the, the difference as large as uh, to take up the slack. And on the sort of negative, risky side, unfortunately, when kidneys fail, they fail together. So it's not like you're having that extra kidney is going to help you if you start to experience kidney failure. Uh, the exceptions are cancer and some kind of trauma or accident. Sure. Uh, kidney cancer is relatively rare. There's none of it in my family. Um, I don't tend to uh, do things that are really likely to give me traumatic accidents. Uh, so I didn't think those risks were particularly so, yeah, I went through, uh, I told Sally that I would, if, if all the compatibility worked out, that I would donate a kidney to her. Went through a lot of tests um, over a period of months. For a while, she um, thought she had another donor um, she had found via a, a website, matchingdonors.com, who was a complete stranger. It was just somebody who altruistically wanted to you know, help out another human being. Um, and that fell through. And so in March March 4th, I in, went to Washington and we had this uh, surgery and uh, everything is 
fine now. Um, and the process did, you know, as, as somebody who believes in markets and believes that people should have autonomy over their bodies, you know, if you had come up to me, you know, two years ago on the street and asked me, what did I think about kidney, you know, selling your kidney, I would have said, well, you know, I think it should be legal. Um, but I didn't really think very much about it. It was sort of like, yeah, yeah, right. It was just an, an opinion. What I learned through the process of this is that this is a terrible problem, that we are literally killing thousands of people because we are squeamish about um, allowing any kind of financial incentives for um, for donating organs, whether it's donating from deceased uh, organ donors, which is what most people think of, or the much more important for kidneys, uh, donating live organs uh, from live donors. There are, you know, something like 70,000 Americans on the list waiting for kidneys. If every single person who died in circumstances to allow, uh, you know, their organs to be harvested it, it had signed a donor card and their their families agreed, uh, that would run, I believe it's about 15,000 kidneys a year, you know, increase. It would, it would essentially double the number that are available today. You would still have a huge waiting list. The only way, given current technologies, um, to deal with this is to encourage more people to donate uh, kidneys while they're alive. Now, part of that is a matter simply of public education. I mean, people, in my view, people don't understand that this is simply, it's a risky thing, but it's only as risky as lots of, you know, cosmetic surgeries that people have. Um, it's, it's, it's not an inconceivable thing to do, um, especially if you're young and healthy. Um, what happens today is that because people do turn to their families, um, actually some of the people who end up being kidney donors are maybe not quite as healthy as it would be ideal. Uh, they may it, it, often there are issues with obesity, for example. Uh, but more importantly, there's just you know it's like supply and demand are not meeting, and the only one way you can get them to meet is to pay people uh, for uh, making making these donations. Now, I think a lot of the resistance to this is not just a sort of anti-commercial resistance, although that's a lot of it. Uh, a lot of it is simply that people don't understand what's involved, that they don't understand the uh, level of sort of medical care that must be involved in order for the whole thing to be successful. They don't understand the complexities of our transplant systems and all the safeguards that are built in to that system. You can't just whack somebody over the head on the street and steal their kidneys and stick them in somebody. That's just not going to work. I mean, uh, it, 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 this, is not a, this is not a sort of 
theoretical point. It's just medically it doesn't work. Um, And they don't understand that this is not an inconceivably altruistic, heroic thing to do. I mean, it's, it's far less risky than things that people get paid to do all the time, like fighting fires in California. Um, and so I have been trying, working with Sally and other people, to try to sort of change the discussion. There's a federal law that says you can't provide any incentives for any uh, uh kind of valuable consideration in exchange for uh, organ transplants, uh, organs to be transplanted. And and that has been used even to uh, a, a few states have tried to implement sort of tax credits or paying parts of funeral expenses for deceased donors, and that has, has not gone through uh, because of resistance to it. And certainly the idea of actually compensating um, uh, living donors has gone nowhere, and it's it's a real problem. Um, it's it's a lot of people have a concern that well, if this were the case, you know, only only rich people would get kidneys. Well, poor people, yeah, poor people would donate. First of all, we them. have a system where, to some degree, that's happening already because rich people are going to uh, you know fairly unsavory sources of. of kidneys, uh, like going to China for uh, kidney transplants, um, which often come from, you know, executed prisoners, and you wonder (laughs) the rule of law not being so good in China, you know, what were the circumstances of that execution? Um, But the other thing is, you know, the kidney, the people whose kidneys are failing are not a bunch of, you know, Google zillionaires. They are working and middle-class people, a third of them are African American. Um, they often do not have uh, you know, lots of money, and any system of paying donors would have to go through the same kind of um, medical insurance, whether it's public or private insurance system, that the rest of the transplant system goes through. But meanwhile, we're paying huge sums, because there is a federal entitlement to a dialysis. We're paying huge sums for what amounts to kind of an iron lung approach, which is you keep people alive, but their quality of life is hugely diminished, and their health gets worse and worse while they wait, so that the chances of a transplant succeeding become lower over time. It's grotesque. Um, The whole thing really uh, I find very tragic. Now, the medical establishment uh, often discourages or at least hinders donations between strangers or relative strangers because they're afraid that if if a stranger gives uh, another stranger a kidney, uh, then obviously there's there's the potential for under the under the table payments, um, and that it's much better says the establishment to rely on love say, between a, a family members. I'm curious, in your case, if you got any discouragement in this, uh, being in this intermediate case of a friend but not a, not a relative or a close friend. Well, I didn't get any discouragement from the transplant center uh, other than their normal approach to, you know, I had to talk to a social worker, make sure I wasn't crazy and that I wasn't doing this for some, you know, 
because of some deep under, unsta- instability. Uh, but you know, I I didn't get medical establishment discouragement, but I did get a lot of discouragement from uh, family members, from people just thinking this was incredibly weird. Um, my own personal physician did say, the first thing she said is, you know, you can change your mind. Now, I think that that, that was that was all she said. I mean, she didn't go into a long song and dance about why she shouldn't do it or anything, uh, although some other uh, friends of Sally's who had considered donating to her did have really active discouragement from their physicians um, uh, so that that there is a sense in which people treat this as this kind of inconceivable thing, um, which would be one thing if we didn't do similarly risky things all the time for equally optional reasons. Um, but I, um, partly because Sally had already found a transplant center that was, was willing to transplant a kidney from somebody who was a complete stranger whom she had met on the Internet, uh, they certainly were not going to discourage somebody who was actually a friend, even sure. though not a, a, a close one. But there is this there are a certain number of people, in, in the scheme of things, actually donating a kidney is a relatively easy good deed, at least by my lights, because you don't have to do any follow-up, really. I mean, you just do it, and then it's over. <laughs> you have some pain, and but it goes away in a week or so. It's not like uh, um, you know a long-term commitment, and it's, it's not certainly not like joining the Army or something, um, or uh, you know be- becoming a inner-city teacher, you know, they're much harder things to do. But people do discourage it, and there is a sense that if people, there are a number of websites, there's matchingdonors.com, there's also a forum called livingdonorsonline.org, uh, which is a really good resource, although I, uh, for people who are either seeking or have been or are thinking about becoming living donors. Um, and in both of these, people do try to find donors. Um, there are some hospitals that do not want to do these these surgeries if the donors did not have a previous relationship. Some of that is, as you suggest, concerned that there might be under the table payments, um, which which don't bother me at all. Which but, don't but, bother me <laughs> either. But there is, but it know, does bother are them. illegal. Yeah. So although no one has ever been prosecuted for it. Um, but the other concern, which is a little harder to understand, and I have wrote a Forbes column about it, and Sally has written about it from her perspective, um, is the idea that it's unfair. If you want to be an altruistic donor, you should just go to the nearest transplant center and say, I want to donate to whoever's at the top of the list who's compatible. Right. And that it's unfair for people to meet on the Internet or uh, somehow. There's this notion that there's two distinct categories. It's all right to give to close friends, relatives, and it's all right to give altruistically to complete strangers where it's almost like a random draw who gets it. But if you've read in the newspaper a compelling story about a young mother who needs a kidney and and are moved by that story, uh, you shouldn't be able to give to that specific person. 
Uh, and this I, I find really terrible, especially when you consider that when somebody is moved to donate a kidney to a stranger because of having heard that particular person's story, and if they go through with it, everybody else on the list moves up anyway. Yeah. So everybody is better off. <laughs> it's a bizarre um, It's blindness, not as though it? you were going to give... I mean, if you went to the person who was next on the list and said, um, you know, so-and-so wants to give to this other person... Um, you missed your chance. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but how would you feel about that? They're not going to say... It, it's not like they have the option that they're going to get it. Oh, they're not going to say, "Well, I want that person to be worse off just out of spite." <laughs> hey, it's it is it's a bizarre um, mindset. I don't uh, now on on a it. positive note. There is start because of publicity about this. Some hospitals are starting to change their policies um, because of public pressures and are saying, "No, we will we will accept these kinds of, of donations." Um, you know, subject to the normal checks and. Examination, but there is. If you go on a living donors online dot org, people will advise other people. Just don't say, don't mention that you met on the internet. Just say your old friends or that sort of thing. Unbelievable. Well, shifting gears one last time. Um, Milton Friedman passed away this past week, and I'd be interested in your thoughts. Well, you know, it's a it's a real loss. Although I guess we would all like to live to ninety four and still be active, and, uh, as he was, um, he was a towering figure. Um, and what I really appreciate about his work is that he was both a, a really great scholar, very empirical, uh, very curious, um, and and very important and influential and a really great popularizer and uh, activist or as uh, as uh, his long-term time friend would have uh, George Stigler would have disapprovingly called him an actionist because he believed Friedman believed that uh, public policy could be changed uh, through persuasion and argumentation and Stigler didn't uh, and the thing that I really appreciate about Friedman, and I think that he influenced uh, a lot of people in this direction, is that he never became soured on the belief in the academic life and in scholarship. Uh, he never saw the university as the enemy, and he, and he always believed that you could change people's minds. Um, through argumentation and persuasion and evidence, and he was open to evidence himself. His, his views about monetary policy were consistent and yet evolved over the course of his uh, life. And I, I think he was really a, a, a great model for uh, the public intellectual and the academic scholar. Yeah, I um, second all that. And he also was a fine human being, which is a yeah, <clears throat> remarkably right. rare a remarkably rare uh, attribute in people of his uh, stature and skill level. But I think that was part of his whole. That was it was of of a piece with his other uh, part of the reason he was able to be so effective was his personal quality. My guest today has been Virginia Postrel, author of The Future and Its Enemies 
and the substance of style. She writes regularly for The Atlantic and blogs at dynamist.com. Visit econtalk.org to find links related to our discussion, along with other podcasts. Now for your emails. The podcast with Richard Thaler on his idea of libertarian paternalism generated a lot of comments. Here are two of them. John Brothers writes in part, Professor Thaler is right that given that government is in charge of, say, Medicare, it ought to pick choices or models that help people help themselves because we're all too lazy or dumb or overworked to try to comprehend the deep details and unintended consequences of the choices we make on our own. I think your protestation that they shouldn't be doing it anyway while noble is, alas, not going to happen. However, what if it was what if it was successful? What if government did a good job of setting up Medicare choices effectively and people were happy with the results? It would result in more justification for more government control of the economy. Not good. John continues, I think you're right that even when government employees or agencies do try to work in our interests, the likelihood that they'll actually succeed is not very high. They'll try and fail for all the right reasons. More importantly, Markets and systems change over time, and what might be a good default policy in 2006 may not be a very good default policy anymore in 2011. But woe to us if we try to get the government to change something that appeared to be successful five years ago. You also point out that the approach of trying to get government to do better is contrary to the approach of getting the government to do less. Professor Thaler argued that we could do both, but realistically, there's only so much passion to go around is some of it is spent on advocating for libertarian paternalism, there's less passion to advocate for smaller government. I'm not saying there's a fixed amount of passion, but I do believe that it gets consumed by a cause. Well, thanks for your letter, John. Pietro Poggi Corradini had this reaction to the Thaler podcast. It seems to me that in cases where the government is in competition with the private sector, some of these improvements would happen simply because, say, the government would want to attract more employees to its own cafeteria, i.e. because the same market forces you mentioned. So what Thaler wants to do, it seems, is to give the government consulting advice. If that's the case, then libertarian paternalism is an awful choice of label. The phrases government advisor or how to be the best government you can be are not as provocative, but they would fit much better with Thaler's intentions. Maybe libertarian paternalism is indeed an oxymoron. Well, I want to thank Pietro and John for their letters. Be sure and visit econtalk.org to listen to the Thaler podcast or to hear the podcast with Ed Glazer, which is a critique of Thaler's ideas. I'd like to hear from you. Send comments or questions or reactions of any kind to mail at econtalk.org. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.